selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Hi, Cramaholics. This is your host, Kinsey, and I'm here this week to bring you the story of Arthur Shawcross. Arthur Shawcross also known as the Genesee River Killer, was born June 6, 1945 in Kittery, Maine. As a young child, Arthur and his family moved to Waterton, New York, and this is a small town near Lake Ontario. Arthur had stated that his childhood was filled with all kinds of horrific traumas. He stated that he had a very strained relationship with both his mom and dad, but said that his relationship with his mom was very abusive. He described her as domineering, which means she was controlling and mean and very overbearing. Arthur claims that age nine, one of his aunts began sexually molesting him. Between the ages of 9 and 11, he stated that he had sexual relations with his little sister. At age 11, he claims that he began having homosexual encounters with other boys his age. Shortly after that started, he said that he began experimenting with bestiality with their family dog. So obviously right away, Arthur is experiencing horrible, horrible things at such a young age. However, his mom, dad, and siblings claimed that they all lived a very normal childhood and that Arthur made all these stories up and that they were a figure of his imagination. They said that he was just a pathological liar. Although Arthur did happen to struggle with bedwetting, which is a sign of sexual abuse, but the truth of these claims would never really be known. Arthur would often change his stories as time went on, and so to other people, he was just a pathological liar. Arthur also struggled in school. He had a very low IQ and was often in trouble for bullying the other students and was very violent. During this time, Arthur was also suspected for arson. And shortly after the arson accusation, he ends up failing the ninth grade and dropping out of school for good. After failing out of school, his actions just escalated. In December of 1963, Arthur would be in trouble for his first charge and sentenced to probation for getting angry and smashing out a shop window. 
Less than a year later, after this incident, in September of 1964, he marries his first wife named Sarah at age 19. And Sarah actually got pregnant very early in their marriage. And nine months later, Sarah would give birth to their son in October of 1965. However, Arthur and Sarah's marriage did not last very long. In November of 1965, he was put on probation again, and this time it was for unlawful entry. So their marriage lasted just over a year. In November of 1965, when he got that charge for unlawful injury, Sarah had had enough. She was tired of Arthur getting in trouble. She was tired of the way he treated her, and she ended up filing for divorce. By April of 1967, Arthur would marry his second wife, and shortly after their wedding, he was drafted into the army. The exact length of this marriage was unknown, but it was short-lived due to heavy violence on Arthur's part, and it happened to be over before he left for his tour in Vietnam in October of 1967, so it seems that this marriage may have only lasted just a few months. While Arthur was in Vietnam, he claimed that he cannibalized two girls and many other children, and also went on to say that his combat kill number was 39, and obviously these are major stories to things to be claiming and so they were investigated after investigation it was determined that both of these claims were lies in 1967 after his tour in vietnam arthur would be in trouble again he was arrested for arson and sentenced to five years in jail arthur would only spend two years of that sentence in jail and he was released in october of 1971 after being released he moves back to waterton new york and just one year after Arthur moves back to Waterton, his neighbor goes missing. On April 7th of 1972, 10-year-old Jack Blake would disappear. On the very same day of Jack Blake's disappearance, Arthur just happened to take him fishing. So right away, the police go to Arthur and they start questioning him about his disappearance, but he claims he has no involvement whatsoever. With the lack of evidence, no body, and no leads, the police just stop looking at Arthur. Within weeks of Jack Blake's disappearance, Arthur would marry his third wife, Penny, and at this time, she was actually pregnant with Arthur's second child. Five months after Jack Blake's disappearance, the body of eight-year-old Karen Hill would be found underneath a bridge. Evidence showed that she was sexually assaulted and that there was dirt and leaves put into her mouth to keep her quiet, and Karen was strangled to death. When the authorities end up questioning people in the area, they each said that they had saw Karen with Arthur underneath that bridge on that same exact day. The police went again right to Arthur, and they start questioning him, and after investigation and strong evidence, Arthur was arrested. On October 3rd, 1972, the very day of his arrest, Arthur ends up confessing to the murder of Karen. He put up no fight whatsoever. They laid out the evidence, and he just says, yes, I did it. I am responsible for the murder of Karen. The police end up questioning him about Jack Blake's disappearance, and the police tell him, if you tell us what happened to Jack, we will give you a lighter sentence for Karen's murder. Arthur does end up confessing to the disappearance of Jack Blake, he ends up showing the police where his body was, and the evidence showed, like Karen, Jack Blake had been raped and strangled to death. Arthur would end up being sentenced to 25 years for Karen's murder. However, he was never charged for Jack Blake's murder, and he was given immunity for his confession. Obviously, Jack's family was upset and outraged that their son would never, ever get the justice he deserved. But they did state that they were relieved to know who took their son's life, because to them, that was a little bit of closure. 
After his sentence for Karen's death, his wife, Penny, ends up filing for divorce. Arthur would only serve 15 years of his 25-year sentence for Karen's murder and ends up being released on parole in April of 1987. He ends up moving to Binghamton, New York, and the public knew who Arthur was, and they were furious that this guy moved into their area, and he had tons of problems. So Arthur was forced to move to Rochester, New York, and at this time, He had a girlfriend named Rose Whaley, and she also moved to Rochester with him. For whatever reason, the authorities wanted to give Arthur a chance at a normal life, which to me is very saddening for Karen and Jack's families. Neither of them get to grow up and have a normal life. Why should this guy be given any chance to live normally? With that being said... The authorities decide to seal his records to prevent any further issues with the public. In Rochester, him and Rose would get married, but this marriage was considered lackluster, so this caused Arthur to seek intimacy from other places, and so Arthur began sleeping with prostitutes, and he also had a mistress named Clara Neal. Something about these prostitutes would just end up setting Arthur off in his old ways. On March 24th, 1988, a few men were hunting in the woods, and they come upon a woman's body. And it was later determined that this is the body of 27-year-old prostitute Dorothy Blackburn. Her body was discovered in the Genesee River, and her body had bite marks all over the groin area. And her autopsy showed that she had been strangled to death. Unfortunately, with little evidence, her case went cold. Over a year later, September 9th, 1989, the body of prostitute Anna Stephan was found, and like Dorothy, she had been strangled to death. But her body was actually not near the Genesee River, so at this time, no one even suspected that there was a possible serial killer. And from what I researched is during this time, it was not uncommon for prostitutes to be killed. And so that's why no one was suspecting any type of serial killer. A little over a month later, October 1989, body of homeless woman Dorothy Keeler would be found. And just six days after Dorothy is found, prostitute Patricia Ives would be found, both killed by strangulation, both found in the Genesee River. So at this point is when police begin to suspect that there might be a serial killer. And they end up naming this offender the Genesee River Killer. Authorities also began to try and build a profile for the offender, but they end up only sorting through criminal records of the criminals in their area. And due to this, Arthur was never on their radar because his records had been sealed. During this time, police did urge the prostitutes to be careful and to report any strangers in the area or any type of strange behavior. However, given that their work is completely illegal, it makes me wonder how often prostitutes actually report anything strange to the police. During this time, more and more prostitutes would go missing, and so police decided to start patrolling these areas. And once they started patrolling, they were actually able to put together a description of this violent John with the help of the prostitutes. Shortly after putting together the description, another body would be found, and this is the body of 26-year-old June Stott. June Stott was not actually a prostitute or a drug user, so this kind of threw off the authorities. In an interview Arthur did, he states that June Stott was a random girl that he had met in town and that he really liked her, and he asked her out on a date. And for whatever reason, during this date, the two of them go into a wooded area. He says that they had begun making out, and for whatever reason, June had changed her mind, and she would not want to do anything sexual with Arthur. And he said this enraged him. He got really mad and angry, and he lost it, and he says, I just broke her neck with almost 
no remorse in his voice whatsoever. In this interview, Arthur also stated that he would often return to the bodies of his victims days later to relive the attack. What he did to June when he returned to her body days later was absolutely bone-chilling and deplorable. Arthur anally mutilated her, sliced her from throat to crotch, he gutted her, and removed her labia. As Arthur describes all this in this interview, it's seriously bone-chilling how calm and how he has no remorse in his voice whatsoever for his actions. At this point, there is now 11 unsolved murders, and the fact that the body count got higher and they had no leads, the police began to feel like they did not have the resources to get this solved, and so they end up turning to the FBI for help, and the FBI brings in multiple profilers. They developed a profile and described the killer as a white male, 20s or 30s, a strong build, possible criminal record, He's familiar to the area, and victims are comfortable enough with him to get into his car. Based on the lack of sexual assault on his victims, this person had a possible sexual dysfunction. And based on June Stott's injuries, the killer is becoming more comfortable with corpses due to the returning of the crime scene to relive the attacks. Police continue to canvas areas that were known for prostitutes. And in that interview I mentioned prior, Arthur had said that one night... As always, he was on the prowl. He was on this main drag in town where the prostitutes often worked. He said that he was dressed in a really nice suit and he had on really nice shoes. And an undercover investigator came up to him because he thought he was part of their team based on his attire. He says that this man ends up pointing out to him all of their decoys. And in this interview, Arthur is just cracking up. He thinks this is hilarious because this undercover investigator is so stupid. He has no idea that he's literally talking to the killer and telling them all of their information. Shortly after, on December 31st, 1989, police began looking for Felicia Stevens, another missing prostitute. On January 2nd, 1990, while looking for Felicia with a helicopter, another body actually ended up being spotted underneath a bridge. This body was naked and laying under a thin surface of ice, and the body was later determined as June Cicero. People were shocked that June went missing to begin with because June is considered like the baddest prostitute. People are intimidated by her. They're scared of her. She's tough. So not only was she the type not to go missing, she was definitely not the type to be murdered. It was later determined that June's body was mutilated and cannibalized after her death and she was almost sawed in half. While the helicopter was in the air, they actually spotted a man standing on the bridge And this man looked to be either peeing or masturbating. In this same interview, Arthur had stated he wanted to relive the attack on June for a second time. He initially attacks June and strangles her to death, puts her under the bridge. A few days later, he goes back, mutilates her, cannibalizes her, and almost falls her in half. A few days after that, Arthur goes back to the bridge and relives the attack by masturbating in broad daylight with no care in the world. Arthur said at first he did not realize that this helicopter was looking for Felicia or had even spotted June's body and didn't pay any mind to it. He finished his business, he got in his car, and he drove off. Arthur had stated a few minutes later is when he started to notice that this helicopter had been following him from above and he begins to get in an all-out panic. Patrol teams on the ground were alerted and they took off after Arthur. They were able to successfully find him and pull him over and they ran the plates on 
his car that he was driving, and it was determined that he was driving the car of Mistress Clara Neal. After the authorities pull over Arthur, he ends up admitting that he does not have a driver's license due to a previous manslaughter charge. And so right away, the police are confident, like, they got their guy. So they end up arresting Arthur, and they begin questioning him. And Arthur does actually open up about the responsibility in the deaths of Karen and Jack Blake. But when asked about the 11 murders, he denies any involvement, and he just won't budge at all. However, a picture taken of him in prison for the murders of Karen and Jack Blake matched the sketch that the FBI put together, and it matched it to a T. After further investigation, it showed that his mistress, Clara, was given a piece of jewelry from Arthur that actually belonged to June Cicero. Police want to use this to their advantage, so they threaten to implicate her in the murders in order to get Arthur to admit. Arthur does end up confessing, and he states that Claire had nothing to do with any of the murders. During the confessions, he had stated that he had no choice but to kill these women, and he was forced to do it. He never ends up really elaborating on that, but many people speculate that if he did have a possible dysfunction, that maybe during these times he would get angry and outraged and lash out and end up strangling these women. He would also confess to the murders of Maria Welsh and Darlene Trippy. Both of these women were prostitutes, but their bodies had not yet been discovered. Arthur does show the police where these bodies were and goes into grave detail of how he killed them. Both women were strangled to death, mutilated, and cannibalized. Arthur's confession statement ends up being 80 pages long. In November of 1990, Arthur does go to trial for the murders. His defense team ends up putting together a heavy case for an insanity plea. They say due to his upbringing of having an abusive mother and had the molestation, the PTSD from war, a cyst he had on his brain, and a rare genetic defect caused him to be insane. Prosecution quickly were able to dispute all the claims and casting huge amount of doubt on Arthur's testimony. The physiological evidence about the brain science and genetic factors ended up being way beyond the understanding of the jury. So the judge ends up ruling that out right away. And because of that, Arthur ends up being declared sane. He was found guilty of 10 instances of second degree murder. He was sentenced to 25 years for each count for a total of 250 years. Arthur was incarcerated at the Sullivan County facility in New York State. And on November 10th, 2008, he began complaining of major leg pain. And so they did transfer Arthur to the hospital, and later that day, Arthur died from cardiac arrest. While Arthur was imprisoned, he actually ended up gaining two very strong relationships. And to me, these relationships are just very off. I watched an interview that aired on Dr. Phil, and Arthur Shawcross's daughter Maggie and a friend of his named John was interviewed by Dr. Phil. And both of them stated that they had strong relationships with Arthur. His daughter, Maggie, was raised by another man, and her entire life, she thought this guy was her biological father. He eventually died at a young age, and two months after his death, Maggie's mother told her the truth that this man was not her biological father. And Maggie felt like she was just had this missing link in her life, and she wanted to know who her father was. Her mother ends up telling her who her father was, after finding out who her father was, Maggie said that it was a very flooring moment for her. It took her a long time to get over these negative thoughts. She said she had to go through a grieving process and often wondered if she would be like her father. 
Maggie had said in this interview that after she got all over these negative thoughts, she wanted to meet her father. She says that she goes to the Sullivan County facility in New York when she sits down with Arthur. She described him as larger than life and just happy, and he was so happy to meet her, and Maggie says to him, Hi, I'm Maggie, and I'm your daughter. Maggie had stated that in the beginning, she never really questioned Arthur about his actions or anything. She said she just kind of wanted to form this bond with him. Later on, Maggie says that Arthur does start opening up to her about some of the things he did. And one thing that she mentioned in this, interview was the cannibalism and how he was also just obsessed with the female genitalia and said that it was like the beginning of life and it just really fascinated him and that he would often mutilate these genitalias and this is where that missing labia comes in from June Stott. Arthur told his daughter, yes his daughter Maggie, that he ate June Stott's labia. So right there, I would expect that Maggie would never have any type of relationship with this man and would never see him again. But you would be shocked to know that after this incident, Maggie would continue to go visit Arthur and she began bringing her children to the jail to see their grandfather. Maggie had stated in this interview that Arthur would also say very strange things to her children And so why she would keep bringing them is just beyond me. There was an incident where Maggie's oldest son told his grandfather that he wanted to enlist in the military. Arthur's response was, do you know what human flesh tastes like? And very oddly, her son says, no, but I'd like to know what it tastes like. And Arthur replies, it tasted like roasted pork. While Maggie did find that odd, she continued to have a relationship with her father and continue to bring her children to see him. The other person in this interview was Arthur's friend, John, and John had a little business he had on eBay where he was selling things, and the things he sold were very strange, and one of them happened to be Arthur's artwork. While Arthur was in prison, he was very fascinated with painting and made all these elaborate paintings, and somehow John and Arthur got in connection through eBay, and John began selling Arthur's artwork. So John said in the beginning this was just a business relationship, but then John started to notice that he was a lot like Arthur. John said that he always had this strange feeling about cannibalizing people, and that Arthur was the only person who understood his feelings when his family had completely abandoned him over these kinds of feelings that he was having. And so he began a very strong bond with Arthur and they would write back and forth and he would visit him. And John ends up actually writing a book about their relationship. And to me, this relationship is just deplorable and odd and disgusting that these two people are just forming a bond over cannibalizing people. And John says that really Arthur was the only person who understood how he felt good about wanting to be on the hunt for humans. I was left scratching my head after watching this interview with these two people because I just could not imagine creating a bond with somebody like that. And honestly, it's creepy to me that this John guy has all these feelings of wanting to hunt humans and is interested in cannibalism and he's just among our society every day. This story is one of those that is definitely going to stick with me. It is deplorable and bone chilling. I am extremely saddened for all the victims of Arthur. I am saddened for Jack Blake's family in particular because their son never got the justice that he deserved.
selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. <laughs> 